Welcome to the MedTechSperts MedTech Business Academy podcast. We have our podcasters today, Skinder Derti, Tom Hickey, and Scott Alexander, and I, Barbara Strain, who will be your moderator today. And we have a new episode about innovation. Today, we are fortunate to have Langdon Morris with us today. He's the co-founder of Innovation Labs, a world-leading expert on strategy and innovation, where he has methods to develop big ideas and to grasp challenging concepts for a variety of folks. Welcome, Langdon. Thank you, Barbara. It's a pleasure to be here with you all. Great. So I'm going to throw out the first question so we can get on board of exactly what is Innovation Labs and who do you work with and and what do you do? So we're a network of consultants working together as a firm and we help organizations around the world solve very interesting and complex problems that involves applying tools and strategy and innovation. Those are our two areas of specialty. And so we do a lot of work with executive teams and also with very large groups to understand the characteristics of complex problems and figure out how we might help them solve them. Well, I was fortunate enough to uh, be on a planning committee and part of a value-based care summit with Langdon and the team from Innovation Labs. And um, that was November of 2019. A lot has happened since then. So it was great to catch up with Langdon, but he piqued my interest when he, in his new le- newsletter said, um, what's going to happen or what's new for 2024? So I thought we'd just sort of jump off with, what are what were some of your thoughts when you were writing that newsletter and, and what's going on for 2024? Yeah, it's um, an interesting period of time that we live in, isn't it? So the impetus of that newsletter was, um, and it's actually something that I do pretty much at the beginning of every year. That um, think about the year ahead, and you know, what are we dealing with as a country? What are we dealing with globally as a society, et cetera? And Of course, I'm informed in that by the stuff that I read, but also by the interactions that I have with executives and and groups around the world. And the thing that jumps out for us now is that um, pretty much everybody is really concerned about how things are going. We've got a lot of political strife in the US. We've got this election coming up that's, um, you know, got a lot of dimensions to it, including the Supreme Court's involved, et cetera. Uh, Globally, um, more people will have the opportunity to vote in elections in 2024 than ever before in history. More than 3 billion people in many, many countries will have the opportunity to go to the polls. Um, So it's a big year globally for uh, democracy. And of course, democracy is being challenged by autocracy around the world. So we have this interesting dynamic. Um, At the same time, we have a massive amount of new technology that's coming into the world. And of course, foremost on our minds is AI and the impact that AI is now starting to have and will continue to have both potentially positive and potentially negative. Uh, So, you know, we live in very challenging times that causes us a lot of worry, but also things that we're interested in and excited about. And for executives, of course, that presents tremendous challenges because from a strategic perspective, 
figuring out what's going on and figuring out what you as an organizational leader want to do about it is a critical role. And it's not easy to figure it out. It's not easier to it's not easy to determine what's going on to make sense of it all because there's just so much. And then to figure out what our organizational strategy ought to be given the vast amount of uncertainty that's uh, that's present in the world today. Great. So one of the things that um, I think struck us all is you actually help organizations get through what you call design thinking. Mm -hmm. And um, it's a it's a process. So tell us a little bit about how you sort of formulate uh, one of those sort of facilitated sessions. What does it look like? Right. So that was like the session that we did together in 2019. So I can just describe that one um, and see how my description matches your memory. <laughs> we'll see how that goes. Um, so a, a group of people, including uh, your organization, a couple of other organizations, uh, Arizona State University and W.L. Gore got together and wanted to think about um, how to improve a, a lot of aspects around healthcare and supply chains. And the technique or the method that we suggested to them, which is what we ended up doing was, I think the group was about 65 people, if I'm not mistaken. We got 65 people together in a room representing a huge range of, of the participants in the industry to think about the future of the industry. This was pre-COVID, but still a lot was going on. And um, to think about what we might be able to do as individuals who are leaders of various organizations to help advance both our understanding and our strategic leverage in an uncertain world. So the technique that we apply is, is not is to get away from the, the notion that an expert can tell you what to do. Um, all these problems are so complex that, you know, a given expert, no matter how brilliant they may be, um, is very unlikely to be able to anticipate exactly what's going to happen or to prescribe a, a strategy correctly. And therefore, what's necessary is for people to engage in thinking about the issues and challenges and factors that are involved and model out possibilities. It's a technique that we call scenario planning that's been around for about 50 years. And scenario planning is a really powerful tool because it gets you to think not like what's going to happen, but what could happen. And when you think about what could happen and you consider various alternative possibilities, based on lots of uncertain but very important variables, then you begin to realize that it's a, it's a fool's errand to try to predict, but what we're looking for are strategies that will enable us to address these challenges and problems in an effective manner, in a sense, no matter what happens. So the technique involves a lot of study in the moment, so we, we present a lot of information for people to, to grasp, and then uh, we create essentially discussion groups for people to sort out what they're reading, what they're learning, what they're hearing, and, and think about what does it mean and what it might it mean and, and what would that imply strategically. So it's in the case of the session we did together in 2019, it's you know two and a half days of absorbing a lot of information, sorting out what it means, and then thinking about what actions we would want to take both collectively and individually within our own organizations, given that it was a multi-organization group of about, as I said, 65 people or so. What, what, so our job as facilitators is essentially to construct what we call a learning journey. So we know where we want to end up, which is we want to end up with strategic clarity. 
in order to get strategic clarity, we have to input into ourselves a lot of information. We have to absorb a lot of different points of view and a lot of different sets of objectives, which are sometimes in conflict, very often in conflict. We have to create a pathway for people to talk that through in a productive fashion. And uh, so it's a very engaging process. Uh, a lot of our work is done ahead of time to, to set up the structure and to, and to set up the flow. And then we sort of just kick the process off and people start talking and we ask them provocative questions. And uh, pretty soon we start to get some really interesting answers and insights. What what is the time frame when you're you're talking to companies about innovation? Um, what is the time frame that you're generally looking towards? Is it? And I, I'm sure there's some aspect of this that is very circumstantial. Yeah. Um, but in a, is there a generalized form that you typically suggest looking at one year, six months, three years? Help us understand what is the most effective time frame. Um, in our experience, three to five years is necessary. Um. If you're only looking one year, then you're really not looking far enough because things are changing so fast that, you know, one year is like tomorrow, mm -hmm. essentially. On the other hand, beyond five years, so much is changing that it becomes kind of science fiction. So we, we typically frame our projects in a three to five year time frame. And then, of course, the other thing that comes up is people will soon recognize when they're in this intellectual process of sorting out all these variables. They say, well, things are going to change. So. You know, in six months, we may have to re revisit our strategy. In a year, we may have to re revisit our strategy. We have to be prepared that we're going to, that for, events may force us to, to rethink what we're doing. But at the same time, if we don't have a vision of where we want to be in three to five years, then we're not, we're not steering our organization in an appropriate manner. So that's the kind of the way we think about it and the trade-offs. You know, it's interesting because a lot of us come from large organizations that do strategic plans, but strat plans every year. And yeah. it seems to me like the big thing that you're describing, Langdon, is the difference is, whereas organizations traditionally, it's almost like a rote procedure of like, you already know what's going to be in the strat plan. Right. It sounds like your call is to be more provocative and saying, well, what about this problem? What about that problem in a way that actually requires a level of insight and reflection? Um, is that is that accurate? Maybe in terms of what what the, the the true value is of these kinds of exercises. Yeah, I think you're exactly right, Scott. Um, we want to challenge people's thinking, and we want to have them expose their assumptions so that they can then discuss them with each other, uh, particularly if they're in one organization. Mm -hmm. Because what happens so often is that people have a lot of unspoken assumptions. And that leads them in different directions. And when they actually sit down and expose those assumptions through a process like this, then they can get much better aligned. So this is a great thing to do for boards, for executive teams, or for uh, business unit management teams. Um, and it, it, to your point, it does have to be challenging. It can't be rote. And if it is rote, then you know we get bored and everybody feels like they're wasting their time. Mm -hmm. If it's challenging, then you know, it's exhausting, but it's also really, really, it can be really inspiring. Yeah. Langdon, I'd like to ask, you know, this is really interesting to me because we, all of us on this call, often get involved with med tech innovators right. and typically very early phase innovators, right? You know, pre-seed mm -hmm. round types of discussions mm -hmm. where 
there's a lot of focus on immersing themselves into the technology and the clinical response to those technologies. So they're working really closely with clinicians, whether they be doctors, nurses, pharmacists, what have you. Um, and they've got to solve some of that first, right? They've really got to get a handle on what it is they're they're trying to solve. So, you know, oftentimes we like to get involved with those innovators early, early stage. For your group, it seems like you're you're doing some other macro types of uh, involvement. So what, what's the best time if you're an innovator? When should they pick up the phone and call Langdon? So it's a really interesting point that you make about um, sort of the phases, that the, the developmental phases that uh, an entrepreneur or a small organization will go through on the in the quest to become a large organization. Um, and so and and to your point, what's required is actually different types of thinking at different phases. So the stuff that I've been describing would be really useless for a startup firm, particularly a tech-driven startup. Uh, because to your point, they've got to get a, a working technology that adds value in the marketplace, you know, whatever marketplace that is. Um, so this is sort of the other side of our work. What I've been describing previously is our, our work around strategy, but we also have a pretty strong innovation practice, um, not from a technical perspective in the sense of helping innovators to work out the, their technologies, but in the sense of innovators really have to, one, they have to solve a technical problem, but the other problem that they have to solve is an adoption problem. Right? So uh, I'm sure a lot of your consulting work is around helping them to e understand the customer's perspective so that they can position their solution in a way that customers will be enthusiastic about it. Therefore, looking at competitive dynamics, um, looking at uh, technology roadmaps and in industry and locating where where does your technology fit in terms of where the industry is evolving to and will that essentially deflect the developmental curve and in, in your favor or um, you know is your technology either behind so far behind or so far ahead that um, you're going to have to rethink a lot about what you're doing so a, a lot of value can be added to entrepreneurs by sort of that market positioning and understanding um, but to your point that's really different than thinking about strategy the strategy work that we do is typically for larger organizations um, you know, an entrepreneur's definition of strategy is, A, I got to get my product done, and B, where are we having lunch? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. When we were planning for the call, you mentioned a couple things that I thought might be really interesting as you talked about intellectual fitness. Yeah. So explain that a little bit. Yeah, I like to tell this um, to, to executives when I'm working with them because, you know, as consultants, we're very often asked to provide the answer. Um, and, you know, the big consulting firms, the McKinsey's and the BCG's and the Bain's, I mean, they get paid millions of dollars to basically put together binders that say, here's the answer. And from my perspective, having worked in one of those firms for a while as well, um, that's really not a very good thing to try to do because what executives actually really need to do is they need to understand the, the domain in which they're working. And that's the, that's the intellectual fitness that you just mentioned, Barbara. So what I tell people is you have to do your own push-ups. You know, you can hire me to do push-ups for you, but that's not going to improve your fitness, your physical fitness at all. We need to go through together a thinking process so that your mind is opened and your way of thinking is, is adapted to whatever the conditions are in your marketplace. 
And then you're in a position to actually make sound strategic choices. Having McKinsey hand you a binder that says, you know, go acquire these six companies and achieve this market position is, um, it's a, it's easy to do. It's expensive, but it's easy to do. But uh, the results are definitely not going to be there. And, you know, the track record has sort of shown that. Well, it's also creates a dependency, right? Yeah, exactly. I mean, at the end of the day, if, if you are calling on McKinsey to help you set your strategy this year, well, guess what? You're probably going to do it next year and the year after. And you're never yeah. internalizing those capabilities. Can yeah. you talk a little bit, Lyndon, your, on your perspective around, um, you know, we have our listeners, we work with innovative companies and we work with other organizations that want to be innovative, right? And they want to figure out how do they achieve a, a growth trajectory that they're not on today. Mm-hmm. And so they're always interested in figuring out what can they do? Is there yeah. a toolkit or a an approach that you would recommend to an organization to help them start down this journey to become a more innovative organization? That's the easiest softball question I've gotten. I see. I'm your straight uh, man here. Like, I'm going to ask you to so Barbara's going to hit you with the zingers. So just be careful. That is yeah. just, that is so kind of you to set me up. I, I want to know what kind of arrangement you guys have. As yeah, far right. As far as yeah. Yeah. Now, the check came this morning, by the way. Just so you know, <laughs> Four dash will be showing up. Yeah. Yeah. Eight exactly. in advance. Yeah. So, um, yeah. yeah so, uh, when we started doing our innovation consulting work, which is now more than 25 years ago, um, we started off like any small consulting firm, helping our clients to solve problems in innovation. You know, how do we do this? How do we do that? Either technical problems or organizational problems. And after doing that for a number of years, we began to realize that some of the problems we had helped clients solve were around strategy. Some of them were around their innovation portfolios. Some of them were around their innovation process or their teams. And um, we began to see that we actually had done almost every element of what we could visualize as an innovation system. Mm-hmm. And so I um, took about a year and pulled all, all that together into a book called The Innovation Master Plan, which is our prescription for how to create innovation in organizations. And now I would say a third of our consulting practice is around helping organizations that want to be more innovative uh, to achieve that. Again, not by handing them a binder, not by giving them solutions, but by helping them develop their capabilities. So the innovation master plan framework, which we apply with our clients, so we teach it to them and then they pretty soon say, okay, thanks, goodbye, because they can do it on their own, which is one of our goals basically says that organizations have to be able to do five things in order to innovate well. And that's the four of them I just mentioned. One, they have to be able to think strategically, which is what we were talking about at the beginning of this call. So they have to have that intellectual fitness to understand the strategic landscape. Second, and very specific to innovation, they have to construct an innovation portfolio, which Tom, to your question earlier about how you work with startups is clearly a key thing for a startup is, you know, at what point do you go from one innovation or one technology to a portfolio and how do you manage that portfolio and how do you decide what's in and what's out? And of course, the larger an organization gets, the more critical the construct of that innovation portfolio becomes. The third thing they then have to be able to do is to is to actually run an innovation process so that they can achieve whatever targets the portfolio has established. So innovation process includes stuff like what we did with Barbara, which was essentially a design thinking innovation process. You know, how do you run a workshop? How do you run a stage gate? 
how do you manage investment? How do you make all those operational decisions? And how do you develop the capabilities for people to be able to do those things well? The fourth element is the people itself, which is um, something that we sort of discovered. It was actually a bit of a surprise. Um, we started thinking about the roles that have to be played to achieve innovation in any type of organization, small, medium, or large. And we discovered that there are three critical roles. And if any two of them are there and the third one is missing, you have essentially a stool that will fall over. Uh, so then we started to develop sort of frameworks and tools to help train people to fulfill those roles. One of them is the innovation leader role, which is essentially a policy role. Another is the innovation management role, which is a process management. And the third is the creative role, which is, you know, the coming up with new ideas. And by thinking about them separately in this way, we were able to help organizations realize that to be, for example, a chief innovation officer doesn't mean that you have to be the most creative or innovative person in the group. It means you need to be able to run a process to get creative people to be really productive. And those are very, very different things. And the third part of that is obviously if there's no resources, if there's no policy in place to enable people to spend the time and the money to create innovation, then it's not going to happen. So that's the fourth element of the framework. And the fifth element was the infrastructure, which is, you know, what are the tools that we need or the process, things like how do you do design thinking that we need? How do we meet together productively? How do we work virtually given the post-COVID environment, et cetera? And so the Innovation Master Plan book really just is 10 chapters, two on each of the, those five topics. And over the years, we've done, I don't know how many dozens of consulting engagements where we've helped clients to understand the framework and then adopt it to their specific requirements. So Langdon, here, here's my biggest question and, and part of the greatest challenge of being a, a, a consultant, I think we'll all agree on this, right? We, we all have the drunk uncle who's convinced that he's... You know, he invented the iPod. Uh, Google was their idea, et cetera. If only they would have moved on it, um, and they didn't, right? And so, where I'm getting at with this is, there's a lot of romanticism around the concept of innovation. It's probably one of the most overused words yeah. that we talk about. And there's a lot of romanticism, and in Peter Thiel's vernacular, right, going from zero to one is the hardest thing. But that's usually what separates. Just using cliches here, men from the boys, from that that dynamic is how how do you get people jumping from that romanticism of yeah I I want to innovate we want to be innovative to actually taking the first step because your book it sounds amazing it sounds thorough and that's fantastic and you've given them a very thorough playbook but getting them to end you know page three hundred fifty in your book to actually doing is a big chasm. Yeah, no, I agree with you. It's it's always there, and definitely innovation is it's a it's a very seductive buzzword. Like, yeah, yes. we want to be innovative, and then you ask people what does that mean to them, and they inevitably <laughs> hold up their iPhone and they say, "We want to do this." You know, we want to be a multi-trillion-dollar company. Yes, I'm seems like, like a good goal. Well, you know, yeah. so how you how are you going to start? Number one. Um, and just as an aside on the iPhone, I literally get that question fairly often. And I ask people, did you know that Apple started developing the iPhone before 1992 and the product came out in 2007? So you don't want to wait 15 years, do you? Right. <laughs> so um, let, let me ask you a question. So as uh, as a, an innovation executive in three organizations in my career, 
have done this. Like I'm, I am very much a practitioner. We've got some, some good successes and plenty of uh, failures and, and that's, that's okay. But here's the challenge that I've seen inside organizations. And I'd love to know how you solve it. Things are great until you have to start pulling resources away from the core of the business, whether that core is mm-hmm. ligature at Covidian, it's existing businesses at Medtronic, it's patient care at Mercy, right? Whatever the case might be, there's a core business that at some point, innovative solutions have to pull resources from. And that is the point at which all the all the the theory and the desire to make the next iPhone get gut checked. And I've consistently seen in the organizations that I'm in and then you know my peers that have been in other organizations, that's where things fall apart. Yeah. And there's financial reasons and there's operational reasons, but but how does one overcome that reality of all the sunk costs of the iPhone already built in? So when you're going to come up with the Vision Pro, how do you go about doing that? Just curious to get your thoughts on that, because I think that's the crux of what it is for particularly large organizations to do something like this. No, I think you're right, Scott. And it also shows up particularly in any kind of a downturn mm-hmm. when the first place people want to cut is innovation and R&D because mm-hmm. there's no immediate return, right? Innovation and R&D is a short-term cost with a long-term return. Mm-hmm. Um, so there are a couple issues around that. Some are just pragmatic and some of them are more conceptual. The pragmatic is, um, we never incent uh, executives who are in charge of the line businesses to innovate. We never try to make them do that because it's a conflict of interest. If you're being compensated based on your ROI, then we can't expect you to invest in innovation because that's going to detract from your short-term ROI. So we have to pull that budget from a different place. So then the second part of that is to say to the executives, what is the strategic situation in your industry? So this goes back to what we were talking about at the very beginning of the call. How fast is the industry changing? And what risk are you at of having your products or services become obsolete because of technological change? And if you can get them to honestly grapple with that problem, then they'll recognize that if they don't start investing in R&D now, then you know, in a year or two years or three years or whatever that cycle is down the road, they're going to be in trouble because they're not going to be able to make their numbers because their product lines are going to be obsolete because all these technologists that Tom's working with are going to come out with their products and they're going to be going, what the heck are we going to do now? So you have to create that sense of urgency by having them grasp um, how fast things are changing, how fast new technologies are coming and, and what the impacts of that are going to be. And conversely, if you can't get them to understand it, then, you know that innovation is going to be on the chopping block first before anything else when times get tough. So I'd like to maybe build on that question because I think it was it's a really good topic because this to Scott's point, a lot of times, especially in middle size and larger companies, you're pulling people from different areas. So one of the concepts I often run into are silos, right? Because you get people from all these different disciplines, maybe different divisions, and now you know they come in. So I'm I'm wondering with your expertise, you know, what thoughts and advice you might have to help break down silos and and help open up that pathway and maybe get past that 
non-invented here syndrome and some of those other challenges with it. Do you have any insights there? Yeah, a couple of things come to mind. Um, number one is um, the incentive structure in organizations really matters. So if people are incented only within their silo, then they're gonna that's going to reinforce silo thinking. But if they're incented uh, as teams or as business units as a whole, then that's going to help promote the kind of thinking that you're talking about. Um, so that's number one. Number two is actually the sort of process that we led Barbara and that group through in 2019, which we do all the time, which is to get people from all parts of the organization together to help develop uh, a common vision and a common purpose around what needs to happen, both to balance the short-term operational requirements with the medium and longer-term investment and innovation requirements. Because once people get to know each other, then they're really happy to work together. But until I have a face and a name and somebody that I know personally, then it's just those guys over there and they're trying to take my budget away. <laughs> it becomes very adversarial. But when we know each other and we're happy to sit down together and and, and share knowledge, then um, you know a lot of good things can happen that way. That's been our experience. So, that was really interesting. Oh, good. Good again. Yeah. So uh, along those pathways, um, question that I have is. We often see companies when they finally do jump that zero to one chasm in the development and innovation cycle, and they then they quickly get to stage five and they're running at it full speed. And we oftentimes see organizations build solutions that don't have a problem. Um, and it felt like throughout that period, they had an allergy to doing proper market research. They didn't do the needs assessment. Um, why do you think so many organizations drive forward um, and say, so, you know, what? I asked Langdon and yeah, he uses an iPhone, so we're going to make one. Um, and that's the extent of their market share. Why do you think in that early critical stage, there's so much aversion or at least negligence to do that market research? Boy, that is so, so true. Um, <laughs> there's a company that I work with now and I've been working with them for, I think three years. I don't remember exactly when I started. It's been a long time. And they invented some really cool new technology. And so the first thing I did with them was I said, you know, you're familiar with this thing called the chasm model, which Skinder, you just mentioned, right? The chasm model is really important for tech entrepreneurs to understand. And they said, no, not really. So then we went through that and they were like, oh, well, okay, now we, now we get it. And so then we take a look at their product marketing and it's all about how cool the product is. <laughs> I'm like, you know, I don't think they really care about that. I think they want to know what it's going to do for them. You know, like, yeah, but this thing is so cool. He's like, yeah, but what's it going to do for them? But yeah, this thing is so cool. So they say, oh, okay, well, we'll we'll turn it around. We, you know, we'll we'll talk about benefits. So a few months later, we look at their, you know, the website, and it's all about features. It's like, guys, where are the benefits? Yeah. Like, why does somebody want to give you their money? What are they going to get from it? Well, but it says all this cool stuff. I'm like, that's <laughs> not a benefit. That's a feature. Yeah so hard to get them to understand that and i says that i've been working with these guys for like three years and the latest version is all about features and i'm like no guys it's it's benefits we got to do benefits so then i said okay you know what we need to do we need to go interview some of your customers and understand about benefits and they're like why would we want to do that i'm like okay <laughs> uh, a lot, lot of education and and these are smart smart guys they are, uh -huh. they, are, they are not dummies they are so their technology is so cool but they're they're stuck pre-chasm they they will never get over the chasm 
if they can't figure out how to talk to mainstream customers. And mainstream customers don't want to know about features. They want to know how you're going to improve my financial results. So I don't know, does that match your experience, Skinner? Uh, yeah. I mean, there again, we see it very often in this industry. Or <clears throat> what they'll do is they'll talk to a customer and then from that deduce that every other customer is exactly like that. Right. So they'll have penetrated 100% of the viable market via the one discussion they had with the uh, familial, non-biased uh, yeah. person they spoke with. Yeah, right. And the person who they spoke with was, um, the relationship was such that the person only said things that they knew that they, they wanted to hear. Or said things to get them out of their face. Yeah, right. <laughs> yeah, that was my favorite question to suppliers when I was sitting on the provider side is, who was your focus group you asked that said we really needed this? <laughs> and you get the stare, right? Well, we, you know, and was like two people, right? Yeah. So, yeah. yeah. So we've had... um Representatives uh, from um, innovation institutes uh, uh, in the U.S. and things, and I had asked um, Langdon a question about when do you know tech and other folks really sort of go to these uh, innovation institutes where they have you know labs and design and people can help them do a variety of things versus what Langdon does. So he. He had a great answer, and I wanted to sort of tease that a little bit about what he's doing with some innovation centers. What was my great answer? I don't remember. It it was about <laughs> Jimmy oh, that oh, you were okay. telling me about. Okay, okay, yeah. It was only three days ago, but that's okay. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Um, so the... Uh, I think what you're getting at, Barbara, is um, where can organizations find resources that can help them develop their innovation capabilities? So um, there are a couple of organizations globally, which are nonprofits, which are just organized around helping develop capability. Um, and the one that we work with is called Jimmy, G-I-M-I. And so they offer trainings and they offer certifications for people for whom certifications are valuable. Um, and one of the forms of training that they offer is uh, online video courses. And so they're using some of our online video courses uh, to help, you know, this is just a way for people to upskill and, and learn language. And it turns out language is a really important thing for people to learn. Like, um, I think, Tom, you mentioned earlier that, you know, this word innovation is like so overused. Um, so can we come up with a precise definition of innovation? Well, if we're working in an innovation group in our organization, we ought to, so that at least we know we're talking about the same thing. And there's, you know, 25 or 50 other technical terms that as innovators, we really need to know that we're talking about the same thing when we're talking about this thing, so we can have productive conversations. So there's a lot of language. There's also skill development. Um, there's case studies, which are always incredibly helpful for people to see, you know, what did Apple actually do that made them so successful or what did Uber do or what did Blockbuster do that made them so not successful, et cetera. Um, so Jimmy offers uh, not only our design thinking training, but a lot of other video trainings and certifications, and, and it becomes a really valuable resource. It's also really helpful for people as a sort of a community so they can engage in peer communities and they can 
you know, meet people who are doing similar work in other organizations and ask them questions and become resources, et cetera. Um, so it, it's a it's a pretty powerful tool and, and and very useful, especially as we've been talking about. Innovation is so important and it's so widely misunderstood. Well, I was really interested when you mentioned certification and innovation. I had yeah. not heard of that before. Now my other hosts here might have, but I had not. Mm-hmm. And so I thought that was an interesting concept that, you know, something for our med tech audience, if they're really serious about having an innovation, you know, portion of their company or they want to learn more or whatever, you know, mm-hmm. having a certification or sending someone to do that in their company. So I'd never heard of that before. Yeah, I think that's really valuable. A lot of times, um, particularly in medical, the medical field, actually, um, the person who ends up being the point person for innovation comes from another thing like um, Lean or Six Sigma or Quality. And they're like, well, you're doing all this process stuff, so you can do innovation too. And then they get handed an innovation job and they're like, well, you know, actually, what am I supposed to be doing here? So that's where a certification can be really helpful, not because they need the certificate per se, but because they need the education. But the certificate is useful because it gives some structure to the learning process. So, you know, there's sort of the introduction, there's the professional level, there's the managerial level, and those are different types of concerns. So, you know, what you want to focus on as a student will depend on what your responsibilities are. And for some organizations, a certificate's actually quite valuable. It can, you know, give you a raise or enable you to get a promotion, et cetera. So, um, you know, those are all, you know, very legitimate, very helpful things. And, you know, it's a nonprofit, so that removes some of the inherent conflict of interest, which otherwise otherwise might be there. I've got an observation and then a uh, a question, but, you know, I liked your definition or discussion about what is innovation, because sometimes I think I talk to folks and I think, well, innovation has got to have this big, giant eureka aha moment, right, yeah, really. where it's it's more of a evolution than a revolution. But also I see, you know, people forget that it's not always product. It can also be the manufacturing process or something operationally that can offer some terrific efficiencies, right? In Mm -hmm. how we're doing things and how could we do them better? That's one of the observations. But the question I wanted to ask you was, you know, is there one thing that you wish that every company or executive would have done before they come to you? Is is there a gap or is there an observation that you can, you know, share with us that, you know, it's like, geez, if they'd only done this, it could have been such a better experience. Well, they're all so different, you know, yeah. some of the companies we work with are two people and some of them are 200,000 people. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I don't think so. Cause they're really, I'm really just happy that they came to us. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> um, but I did want to respond to what you just mentioned about uh, it's not just product innovation, mm-hmm. because the type of innovation that we think is actually really worth pursuing for almost every type of organization is business model innovation. Yeah. And it's a very specific type of innovation, which, you know, we all experience it. So we all have an intuitive understanding of it because we know the difference between the post office and FedEx. And FedEx is basically just a business model innovation that does the same thing as the post office for you know, 20 times more money, but very often we're happy to pay 20 times more because we're getting the service that we want. Um, so I, I spend a lot of time talking to people about business model innovation and, and helping them understand it. Again, 
we all experience it. So we know, you know, we've, we've been in the hardware store and we've been in Home Depot and we know what those business models are like. We used to go in Blockbuster and now we're getting it from Netflix. So we know what those business models are like. But thinking of it more systemically and thinking about how that thinking can apply to your organization um, is actually the cheapest way to make huge strides in uh, in ROI and in innovation performance generally, in my experience. I've got a question along those lines. Um, because I think you're, I agree with you. The The truth of the matter is when most people hear innovation, they think product, think R&D, that sort of thing. There are commercial innovation groups. We mentioned, you know, Barbara was mentioning the fact that you were working on supply chain um, and you know, overall business model. Can you talk to some of the low hanging fruit that a an owner of a medical device company may be able to take advantage of to go and really start to see dramatic benefits in a short period of time. Well, it's obviously going to be specific to what the technology is or the device is, but um, I think the business model question is a really interesting one for people to think about because generally an entrepreneur um, who has a technology, a device innovation in mind and develops it has a preset idea of how they're going to take it to market. And uh, they may or may not be right about that, but if they think about different alternative business models through which they could bring it to market, they may discover channel partners that they hadn't thought of before. They may discover communication means that they hadn't thought of before. They may even discover you know, ways to monetize that they hadn't thought of before. Like for example, um, I was surprised to find this out and you guys may already know this, but um, Michelin doesn't sell aircraft tires, they rent them. Yeah. And they rent them for what? How do aircraft tires get the most abuse? Landing. Exactly. Landing. So you own an aircraft or you're leasing it from an aircraft leasing company. You don't own the tires. You pay Michelin for every landing on that aircraft. So that's great for Michelin because it creates a sustained cash flow. It's great for you because you're not making a capital investment. It's an operating expense and you can uh, assign a cost to every landing, every flight, et cetera. That's a huge business model innovation, which was completely invisible to me until I started working with guys at Michelin. And then I realized, wow, this is really, really smart. Some of so, the landings I've been on, they should have paid them twice. Uh, uh, <laughs> or paid or paid me. Yeah, right. yeah, yeah exactly. Yeah, the right. most important part is the landing. Yeah, that's right. right. So yeah, it was a successful landing. Yeah, right. You're here. Scott? Yeah, I have, I have a, a follow-up question on that. So I agree with the value of business model innovation. What what you triggered in my head, Landon, is um, are, is there a system like like I was introduced to Triz, which is uh, right the Russian yeah. patent. So for those of y'all who aren't uh, in, like, there's a guy, a Russian patent uh, agent, who figured out that there are consistent themes to innovations and patents in Russian stuff, and so he figured out what are the things you know you. Combine stuff that wasn't combined, you pull stuff apart that was already combined, so on and so forth. Is there almost like a triz for business model innovation that somebody can kind of roll the dice and say, hey, how would you do if you did this part differently? I owe you again, Scott. <laughs> I, read, I, I read up. I'm not I sandwiches for you. Okay. I wrote a book on it called Business Model Warfare. And it has literally, I figured out the formula. So the formula is in the book, the work, worksheets are in the book. Just pick it up. It's one of my favorite books that I ever wrote because it was really, really interesting to explore. Oh, yeah. Thank you, Barbara. Yeah. I'm up a copy of it. Wow. 
It is. It's a fantastic book. Speaking of which, we only have a couple of minutes and, and we're going to wrap up here. But I I said that I asked uh, Langdon what he was working on. So he's working on a new book. Now, we're shamelessly plugging here, but it's called Hello Future. And it's about the next 10 years. And I always am fascinated is how do you even think about the next 10 years? So uh, Langdon, one final little quick thing, and then anybody else want to do a close out and um, then we'll call it a day. Langdon? Yes, thank you for mentioning that, Barbara. I really appreciate it. The uh, The book came out of what we talked about at the very beginning of the call, which is, you know, what's on executives' minds. And what's on executives' minds is that we're in this incredible period of turbulence. And so we know what our business is, but everything around us seems to be just going completely nuts. So how, how can we think about that? So I just got interested in thinking about it myself. And so that's why I, I'm writing the book. It's not quite done yet, but it'll be done in the next couple of months. And it's basically trying to say, OK, well, what is going to happen in the next 10 years and what, what as strategists do we need to do about it? So I'm hoping you'll all go out and buy 10 copies and then 10 copies for your friends and then they'll buy 10 copies. and. <laughs> Pretty We're soon, everybody in the world will have read it and will have fixed the future. And that's then that's Langdon's business model. Okay. <laughs> yeah, <that's, laughs> yeah. Scott it's Tom. It's my viral marketing business model innovation. Exactly. There you go. So, Scott, Tom, Skinder, any final well, thoughts? Before you guys go, I just want to thank you all for a really great conversation. I really enjoyed talking to you. Appreciate the questions and the softball ones and the hardball ones. And, uh, I hope that the uh, people who are listening to this get as much fun and value out of it as I did. So thank you so much for inviting me to join. Thank you for coming. We really appreciate it. Yeah, thank you, Langdon. Appreciate it. I'll just give a couple wrap-up thoughts. I mean, I think uh, to our listeners, I know that there's a lot, and we talked about this in in the conversation, but there's a lot of definitions about what innovation is and you know what it could be. And I think to some people, it's really shiny objects and you know something that, you know, you, you just kind of bounce between. And then for other people, it um, seems really intimidating. And I think one of the things that I would encourage everyone is these are things that get you, you that, that you can go and do. You can go and do it tomorrow and start to test things out. And it's also a muscle. Like we talked about, you know, Langdon is a, a fitness trainer for uh, certain organizations, but just like you can do push-ups in your basement uh, without having a, an innovation expert as your first thing, go and just start doing push-ups in your basement. Think about what are the two or three things that you can test out and innovate and, and just start trying. Because it's one of those things that I think you're going to find it is much easier and more manageable to do than may seem at first. It's not as intimidating as it could be. And as you get better at it, as you do it more, you get better at it and your business flourishes as a result. So, um, and then of course, uh, I would be remiss to say, uh, as you're getting in, look to experts like Langdon who are very free flowing with their knowledge through the books that they publish and the courses and that sort of thing. And then also who knows, maybe, uh, Maybe hire him into your organization so he can send me another check to send to say softball questions on the next podcast. So. <laughs> thank you, Scott. Well, yeah. Well, that sort of wraps up the episode. I want to thank Langdon for coming on and and exercising our muscles today and doing our mental push-ups. And be well out there, MedTech Business Academy. Thanks, everybody. Thank, thank you. you.